0: let's look at our text again this morning. We're going to start in verse 15. And Paul opens with a very important phrase that's going to kind of set the tone for where we go this morning. He says, pay careful attention then to how you walk. This is one of Paul's favorite ways of saying how you live. And he says, not as unwise people, but as wise. So we can see a a theme that begins to start in chapter 4 and continues here. In chapter 4, by His grace, we've, we've put on Jesus. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're loved. We're children of light. And so you saw this last week and the week before, and it continues today here on the screen. You're loved, so don't settle for lust. You're light, so don't settle for darkness. You're wise, so don't settle for foolishness. So the first half of our text this morning has a very clear aim. You are wise in Christ, so don't live like a fool. We are by nature now in Christ, not fools. We have the wisdom of God. So brothers and sisters, if you are a born again believer, you are indwelt by God's own spirit. And he is the wise counselor. And earlier in Ephesians, we talked about how even though we are adopted sons and daughters, we can live like orphans. So Paul is continuing this theme here again. Even though we know and have the wisdom of God, we can act the fool. I could tell you many stories of my own foolishness. Like uh, I'll give you a few. The time I chose to drive in a blizzard as a Texas boy who saw the very first blizzard via car. Not recommended. Or the time that I rented a three-foot auger to put a new fence in my yard without first learning where the sprinklers ran in the yard. You know how that ended. Or another time that I bought NFL playoff tickets without checking to see how expensive flights were. Yeah. So in in each of those cases, I knew better. I knew better and if you have kids you've probably said this out loud you know better what what Paul is not saying though is beat yourself up if you screw up I'm also not saying you already know everything so you don't need to increase in the knowledge or wisdom of God what I am saying is a lot of the time we do know better and we make excuses And this voice this morning is not the shame-filled, sarcastic voice of a parent saying, you know better. This is God's sweet conviction. We actually know better. And he has given us everything we need to walk in holiness. So if you're a Christian, be encouraged because you can be wise in God today. We can live a holy life today We have to stop thinking about uh, the Christian life like a Hindu thinks about a pilgrimage to a temple or a Buddhist thinks about the path of enlightenment and the end of feeling. The Christian life is a journey, yes, but God is not standing at the end of the path with his arms crossed, waiting to see how many people get to him by doing a lot of good things or living a semi-Christian life. That's paganism. That's straight from hell. The moment that God justifies you through the shed blood of the Son, the moment He saves you, He is with you on the journey. He's with us right now. So that's why I can be so confident in saying we can be wise today. That's what Paul is telling us. The journey of the Christian life is not just more and more information gathering more and more knowledge gathering like a pagan religion. The journey of the Christian life is more and more steps walked closely in rhythm with our precious Savior, Jesus. It's more relational intimacy with God, our Father. It's looking and thinking and living more like Jesus because of how much time we've spent with him. So should we grow in wisdom The longer we walk with God, absolutely, the Word tells us that. But brothers and sisters, we have everything we need in Christ this very second to be wise and to live wisely. One pastor says it this way. He says, you become a Christian, immediately you truly know God. You're off the throne and He's on it. You worship Him only. You confess sin. You don't mock it. When you speak, You speak the truths of God, as Peter says. This is a big difference from your former life. You live a wise life. And all the Apostle Paul is saying in our text is, Look, you used to live like a fool, but you've been made wise in Christ. So for his sake, walk in wisdom. Do you see, this is the same message that we've been getting all throughout Ephesians. If this is who you are, then this is how you live. This is how we walk in our life. This is what he's been saying. Paul says it uh, another way, talking about wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, it is from him that you are in Christ who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So hear this. The moment you were saved... Wisdom, righteousness, the start of your sanctification, the purchase of your redemption, all four of those things simultaneously became yours in Christ. If this is who we are, then this is how we live. So Paul says, don't let the evil days make us foolish. We live wisely. John Piper says, don't let the evil days make you stupid. (laughs) So when we talk about wisdom, If that's the theme of the first half of our text this morning, I want to make sure we think about it biblically. Because what I'm not doing is philosophizing. I'm not a talking head. I'm not giving you theory. You may be tempted. We may be tempted in our context of hyper-individualism to hear and think about wisdom as purely stuff we just talk about. Things we think about. We go, hmm, and then we leave. But in a biblical sense, wisdom always changes actions. Real wisdom always changes how we live, not just how we think about a couple things. And I say this because we have immense power to fool ourselves. Unbelievable ways we can intellectually sin, where we can believe something and think about something in a semi-Christian way and then live like unrestrained pagans. We're not fooling ourselves here. If we're talking about wisdom, real wisdom changes how we live. It's not just theory. It's practice. It's life. And so what does Scripture say about wisdom? First, if we want more, we should ask God, and he will give it. We saw this when we went through the book of James. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Scripture also says that the way of wisdom is an ancient path, not a new one. It's important in our context. Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stand by the roadways and look. Ask about the ancient paths. Which is the way to that which is good? then take it and find rest for yourselves. Scripture also says that all wisdom resides eternally in Christ. He is the wisdom of God. In Revelation 5, when uh, we see the myriads of myriads of angels and saints around the throne praising God, they say with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Scripture says that fools build their lives on sand, but the wise build their life on the words of Jesus, the rock of the word, Matthew 7. And then finally from Proverbs 2, wisdom is found here In God's word, we have to be in this. It says in in Proverbs 2, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom, and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright. He is a shield for those who live with integrity so that He may guard the paths of justice and protect the way of His faithful followers. So if we want to be wise and travel on the good path, the ancient path, then we need to be living in God's Word, storing it up in our hearts, knowing that, Paul talks about more later, the fool avoids God's Word, He or she doesn't see it for the treasure that it is. In verse 16, Paul says, we need to make the most of the time. This can be translated and is in some translations as redeeming the time. But one of the best ways to render this is purchasing opportunities. The imagery here that Paul is using is is of a person, a wise and a shrewd merchant with pockets full of cash. Imagine that cash is the grace that God has bestowed on us through Jesus. So he has a lot of it. And he's walking through the market. And he's aware and present. And he's looking for every good opportunity for God's kingdom. And he's reaching out and he's purchasing it. He's buying it. Paul uses the same word in another letter in Galatians 6. He says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So Paul is saying the wise person is a person who seizes every opportunity for Christ and his kingdom. And yes, when we talk about laziness and a hustle mentality, a lot of you do hustle. So if you think I'm pushing back against just laziness, that's not the only problem here. Yes, a lot of you hustle. But to serve what master? God or money? Your comfort or Christ? And some of us are lazy. And we have to realize that nobody drifts into holiness. You don't accidentally get ripped sitting on the couch. Everything in this life, if you don't carefully monitor it, drifts into decay and neglect. A garden that you don't keep fills with weeds and it dies. We have to know that nobody drifts into holiness. So how many Christians just coast through life? Just letting life happen to us, living our days on autopilot. Paul is saying, don't do that. Christians don't just react, we proactively act. We don't let life happen to us. So hidden here in this paragraph is another example of how the wise live and the fools live. Fools coast and float through life. Other fools hustle and sacrifice their lives and families at the altar of comfort and money. But the wise proactively snatch the time. They purchase it, they own it for God's glory. And look at the rest of verse 16. Making most of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. Now, some of us, we roll our eyes at idiot celebrities in red spandex, wearing devil horns, making a fool of themselves. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's, That's not what Paul is talking about here. This letter is not written to 2023 America don't hear this verse. I've heard this verse manipulated and used as some kind of political battle cry to return to the good old days. There are no good old days. The days were evil in the 50s when we had a collective Christian morality here in the United States. The days were evil in '860 when this letter was written. The days were evil under your favorite president. The days are evil because we're not talking about a cultural battle or a political battle. Paul is talking about a cosmic struggle. We, we have to realize we are behind enemy lines. If you're an American, you're behind enemy lines in Iran. You're also behind enemy lines in America because this world, this present world, is not our home. And this planet is dominated by evil and powerful spiritual forces that will not be completely vanquished until the Messiah returns and he throws them into hellfire forever. That's the reality of what we live in. And Paul is saying evil is blinding. He talks about it more in chapter 6. He calls it this present darkness, this evil day. Evil is blinding. To embrace evil and live like a fool is to live in a fantasy dream world where you're the God of the universe and everything exists to please you. That's how evil blinds the hearts of men and women. The darkness that we live in from the resurrection of Christ till the return of Christ is far worse than any loss of collective Christian morality in the United States. Yeah, that's that's gone. It's probably not ever coming back. But who do you think actually wants to destroy the biblical concept of the family? Who do you think actually wants to see whole generations of men and women addicted to pornography? Who do you think actually wants to kill as many children as possible and confuse as many as possible that are alive? Who do you think wants to see as many people subjugated because of the color of their skin or the fact that they're women? Who do you think stokes the fires of racial tension all over the world, tribal, collectivism, everywhere we see it all through human history? As long as we think that our greatest problem is some kind of cultural or political battle we're caught in, we're going to stumble in the darkness. Because the one who wants to see all of that fired up and see men and women addicted and lost and children confused and murdered is Satan and the principalities and the powers of this age. That's who we actually war against. Paul talks a lot more in chapter 6 about what that looks like. But he started that here. He started to lay the foundation of the battle here. So the first thing we need to do is to not live as fools because that sidelines us in the actual battle. The first thing we have to do is confess the sin that keeps us out of the battle. We have to kill it. Think about your your practical life. How? How? Can you wisely love and serve and be present for those in this body if our minds and our eyes are constantly filled with sexual perversion? How can we be selfless and patient knowing that our anger and our pride controls us? The first thing we have to do To be wise is to kill sin by the power of the Spirit. To confess it, to kill it, to free from it, it, to do everything we can to set up barriers so that we're not tempted, so that we don't go into those situations where it devours us because sin gives birth to death. The fool is blinded by his own pride and arrogance and walks headlong into destruction. The wise are on guard looking, knowing that they're not in a cultural or political battle mainly, but that they're in a cosmic battle. And the devil is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. So open your eyes. That's what Paul is saying. He he said it at the end of last week. Awake, O sleeper. Look up, Christian. Open your eyes. Stop being distracted by meaningless garbage and realize the thing that's going to do you in is not a political struggle, but your own sin. That's what's going to kill us. That's what's going to ruin your marriage and your children's lives and this church and your family is if we don't take sin seriously. So Paul says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is to walk in the light to not stumble around in the darkness and we're going to see verses 18 through 21 living filled by the spirit this is the lord's will for us so let's go to verse 18 don't get drunk with wine which leads to reckless living but be filled by the spirit now some of you because i know because i've talked to you you've come out of extremely conservative Baptist or Pentecostal churches, and this may be the first place that doesn't put you under church discipline if you have a drink or smoke a cigar. <laughs> but Paul says in many other places, Christian freedom is not a license to sin. Some brothers and sisters here can have a drink and not think about alcohol for another month. Some of you cannot do that. And so let this text be what it plainly is a warning from Paul the drunk you is not the real you it's the you most numb to reality I'm going to put this quote on the screen so you can see it this is real real wisdom from a writer he said I used to think that when the Bible told me not to do something like not to get drunk it was self-denial for the sake of self-denial forsaking worldly pleasures was just a way to declare that I was a Christian to set myself apart from all the bad people. But in Paul's picture, though, this kind of self-denial is not merely a loss, but a trade. Not mainly a forfeiting, but a fulfilling. Forsaking drunkenness isn't just a name tag for righteous Christians. It's a path to becoming a more whole and happy person. Because in drunkenness, we retreat and surrender to sin inside of us, accepting that the broken me is the real me I'll always be. But in the spirit, we cleanse and advance ourselves with real truth, grace, hope, and joy, not artificial and expiring counterfeits. So just like we said two weeks ago when we talked about sexual brokenness and addiction, don't fight this alone. If this is your struggle, if this is your temptation, confess, get help. Don't hide here until this sin destroys your family or hurts one of your brothers and sisters here. Confess it. Kill it. Get help. Come to us. I've seen Christ deliver people from every kind of affliction and addiction. He can. He can. So don't live alone. Don't hide. Whatever that is, whatever you hear when I talk about drunkenness, if that's not the thing that enslaves you, still kill it confess it, walk in the light as he is in the light like a wise Christian. We see this whole paragraph, Paul is contrasting the fool and the wise. The fool wastes their time. They live carelessly. They let life happen to them. They let culture raise their children. The fool isn't at all concerned with the Lord's will. The fool gives themselves over to substances and ignores addictions. The fool walks alone Or he or she walks with other fools. Proverbs says, the fool lies, slanders, fights constantly. They're proud, angry, and despise correction. But the wise drink deeply from the well of salvation. The living water. And they submit, and they honor, and they learn, and they grow in friendship with Jesus. This drinking analogy works so well here because we can wrap our minds around it. This is repeated consuming of God's word. This is weekly enjoyment of God's people gathered corporately to worship. So we're going to see in the second half of this paragraph the big picture Paul lays out of what it means, what it looks like to live a life filled by the Spirit. So when we're talking about the presence of God's spirit in our lives, we have the promised presence of God. This is our salvation. This is the moment, as Paul said earlier in Ephesians, where we are sealed. This is a one-time, for-all-time event for every Christian. We belong to God. We're adopted by God. The shed blood of Christ covers our sins, and we're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. That's the promised presence of God. And there is the manifest presence of God. And this is a sweet gift. An increasing awareness of God's work in our life, of his real presence in our body, of his giftings that he's given us to bless each other. And that can happen to an individual and it can happen corporately. God's sweet manifest presence, the increasing sanctified life. So Paul says, look at verse 18. Be, but be filled by the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Hear hear this. Speak, sing, make music with your heart, give thanks, submit. Paul is describing the whole life of Christian community what we're doing on Sunday mornings. What we do is we gather throughout the week. This is how the Spirit of the Father uniquely fills us as a people. And we are a people. We're not just a band of individuals. And this life of being filled by the Spirit is not next-level Christianity. This is normal, New Testament Christianity. All of these words that Paul is sharing with us are to be expected and sought out and enjoyed by every brother and sister in the body of Christ. This is His will for us. It's difficult to stumble around in the darkness as a fool if you are filled increasingly by God's Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. And I love to sing this whole whole half of the text. I've always loved to sing. I grew up in the house of a beautiful musical mom. She sang constantly to me, with me, for me, often. I, the older I get, the more thankful I am for her and all that she imparted with how she filled our house with music. She also spoke God's word to me. I hear it anytime I start to grumble. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's internalized in my heart because of my sweet mother. And just a side note of this text, what you sing, if you have kids, how you speak to them, what you sing to them at night as you put them to bed, what you sing when you worship together, the songs that fill your house matter. I am living proof that a lot of hymns can get eternalized and bless people later in life. So sing. Please sing to them. Sing over them. Sing for them. Teach them all the good songs. We've got 2,000 years and then an entire psalter of God's songs. So many good things to learn and to know, to sing about God, to know Him greater, to sing about who we are in Christ. Please sing with your kids. And we thought of another story that Natalie reminded me of this week. Um, My then-girlfriend, now-wife, was staying with us. I was about 17. I got a stomach virus. And uh, my mom was cleaning up the mess in the bathroom and singing loudly, probably some hymn. I don't remember. She was singing. And years later, Natalie went to her and said, man, I remember that. I thought that was so sweet how you were serving your son and singing. My mom looked at her and said, well, when you sing... You can't smell if things stink. (laughs) What What a trick, moms and dads. You're welcome, right? But also, that'll preach. Man, it's difficult to notice when things stink if you are singing. That's another thing that Paul is teaching here. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's just true in life. So sing, sing here. Sing at home. Sing when you're confused about your life. Sing when you're grateful. Sing when you clean up messes. Sing when things don't make sense and you need to get your heart and your mind in alignment with the goodness of God. I think this might be one of my favorite quotes of all time from John Stott. He says, A Buddhist temple never resounds with a cry of praise. Mohammedan worshipers never sing. Their prayers are at the highest prayers of submission and of request. They seldom reach the gladder notes of thanksgiving. They are never jubilant with the songs of the forgiven. We are. And so you see in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Does this smack of a boring assembly to you? where people just stand there with their hands at their side, wishing they were somewhere else. No, this sounds expressive and honest and unashamed, Old Testament David, and joyful. We need Jesus and we need Jesus's people. Who else is going to speak God's word to you? Where else will we gather together and sing songs in adoration of God? And if you're like me, and tempted sometimes to be a cynical fool. The solution to that is to sing, to sing. It'll warm your heart declaring the truth of of God's love and God's word will awaken you out of the darkness and into reality. And so in all of this, I want to invite you this Wednesday, the the 22nd, from 6.30 to 7.30, we're going to gather here and we're going to sing and we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to revive Fort Worth and Alito, our brothers and sisters from that congregation will join us. And I invite you to be here. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter if you feel like you can't sing, what a blessing every Sunday morning is when some of us gather in here downtrodden and depressed and our brothers and sisters sing for us and they sing over us. And the truth of God's word doesn't change despite our circumstances. God works good through all evil for his people, he does. So Paul says also that these hymns and songs and this music of the heart. So if you feel like, ah, I don't sing very well, it's okay. You can sing music of the heart, but also please do sing audibly, do both. But Paul says all of these things should be directed to the Lord. Every time Paul uses the word for Lord, he is referencing Jesus. So these are Christ-centered songs of victory. So we don't serve a dead king. We don't rally under the banner of a mere man. We don't sing songs of weak hope. I'm not standing here gathered with my family in just the house of a mere man or someone that we revere as a wise teacher. I'm here, you're here, gathered in the house of the cosmic king. And what does his banner say? His banner says, it is finished. The war has totally, completely been won by Christ. So we sing a song of joy because the suffering Savior drank down every drop of God's wrath that was headed right for me and right for you. And we can celebrate it is finished. Paul says this, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect. He is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, He has been raised. And He also sits at the right hand of God and He intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am persuaded That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's my song. That's what I sing. That's what we need week to week, day to day. Nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ. So if you're not a believer, or you're watching this and you're a skeptic, this is the song that you're being invited into. You don't have to be the fool. You don't have to stumble in darkness, in misery, knowing that your sins and your addictions will never let you go. Those chains can never be broken. The call this morning is the gospel call to repent, Turn from sin and believe and trust in Christ. He is an all sufficient Savior. Nothing can come against Him and win. Nothing that you have done in your past or thought of doing or are plagued by, can He not completely destroy and wipe away and wash you clean through His perfect shed blood? Paul says in verse 20, We should give thanks. For everything. And I want to note that Paul doesn't say, we give thanks in everything, which he does say in other parts of his letters. But here he says, for everything. And I want you to feel the weight of that. It's a radical statement. What what kind of disposition, what kind of attitude and beliefs do we have to have about God to be able to praise him from bringing good out of any evil that's happened to us. You have to believe and be filled by the Spirit in such an overflowing way where you see God as infinitely wise and infinitely good and infinitely loving and infinitely concerned about your, not temporary happiness, but eternal happiness. You have to bank everything, your very lifeblood, on the sovereignty of your Father in all things. This is... Total and radical dependence on God. No plan can save me. No amount of money. No attempt to be extraordinarily healthy can be banked on. Every day, 100%, I have to bank on the fact that my good father loves me. Even when I don't get it. Even when it hurts. Even when it seems counterintuitive to his plan. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I don't get it but I'm not going to rebel against his will. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to trust him because I believe he works all things together for the good of those who love him and those he's called according to his purpose. I think verse 20 is a great hinge on which this this paragraph can be understood. Do you want to live wisely? Give thanks. The fool never acknowledges God or his work. The fool always takes credit. The fool never humbly submits to God's will. The fool is always wanting more, never satisfied, never giving thanks. The Lord's will for your life is to give thanks, to acknowledge him in all things. A truly grateful life will always be directed by God because the act of giving thanks protects us from a multitude of terrible sins thankfulness gratefulness this is the root that anchors us to the reality of God's goodness and power and faithfulness to us how on earth could we be obedient and walk in wisdom the first half of the text while at the same time being ungrateful and questioning God's goodness so this morning I want to leave you with a question Is this your attitude toward God right now? And if you're a Christian sitting here and you're wondering why, why am I not experiencing the fullness of the Spirit of God in my life? You have to answer that question. What is my attitude like towards God? Do I give thanks in all things? Do I trust Him even when it clearly does not make sense? And if that's your disposition towards God, that he's so infinitely wise and so infinitely good that some of the most painful things that have ever happened in your life are working for your eternal good. What kind of disposition are you going to have towards your brothers and sisters here at this church? Verse 21. This is going to be our attitude. Submitting to one another. In the fear of Christ, we're going to have the attitude of radical love and we won't have to fake it because if we really believe that everything in our life is given to us by a loving father who is concerned about our holiness in Christ, then no brother or sister here is a pain. <laughs> no brother or sister here is an enemy or a them or a thorn in our side because God has brought us together for a reason. You want unity? That's the key to unity, thankfulness and gratefulness for all that God does in our life. That's the kind of unity that the world looks at and can't make sense of. How does a people so diverse from so many different backgrounds and socioeconomic classes not just give each other a hug on Sunday, but actually open our homes and our wallets and our lives to each other in meaningful ways. What makes sense of that? The love of Christ. You want to do better evangelism? Love your brothers and sisters better. You want open doors to talk with your coworkers about why you're different? Show radical love to those who are in this church. That's one of the ways we can do it. That's what Paul is saying here. If by his grace, I can be so filled with the Spirit, gathering here, singing songs, speaking the word to one another, showing love, submitting to each other out of mutual love and respect, the example there that I think Paul is probably referencing is so perfectly encaptured in Christ washing the feet of his disciples. Where he takes off his outer garments And he gets down to wash their feet and they are in absolute horror really (laughs) that he is doing this because that's not how the dynamics of power work here you're our master not our friend and the whole dynamic shifted and changed and jesus said if this is true of me if i can wash your feet as your lord you can certainly do this for each other that's mutual submission and love. So if I can be so filled by the Spirit in that way, that I can give thanks for the good that God has accomplished through the most painful moments in my life, I can love each and every one of you in the way that Christ has called me to. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. Do you give thanks Do you see God working good in all things? Do you stumble around in the darkness? Are you plagued by something you need to confess and turn from? And I also want you to remember the power of speaking God's word, of singing God's word, of filling your homes and your heart with the goodness of Christ. We have to be here together experiencing that, and then we can fulfill the law of love. We can submit to each other and honor each other, where there's no weird power dynamic here, but it's all mutual respect and love because of what Christ has done. That's what it looks like to live a life filled by the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, we need you to convict. If there are brothers and sisters here who need to be freed from a sin that burdens them and plagues them, God, will you sweetly convict them and lead them to repentance, which will ultimately lead them to joy. for those of us who have a difficult time loving our brothers and sisters here. Will you help us remember Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. God, will you fill us with your spirit as we increasingly drink From the well of Christ's love. And the love he has for his bride, the church, and the love we have for each other. God, we ask you to make us a spirit filled church. All that means is what we just read that we walk in wisdom, that we sing of your goodness. That we believe in your promises. That we love one another. Will you make us those people? And Father, will you bless us as we gather on Wednesday to sing and to pray and to reflect and ask you to revive our city? We praise you for your sovereign wisdom that you would appoint months ago this text on this day before that moment. So will you fill us, Lord? May we turn from the poison well of this world and drink deeply from the fountain of grace. We ask these things in the name of our precious Savior. Amen.